You're listening to a 95 BFM podcast. You're tuned into The Wire, one hour of current affairs and analysis starting now. Tēnā koutou katoa. Ko Joe toko ingoa no mai haere mai ki te wire mō tēnei rā. Kia ora and welcome to The Wire for Rāmere Friday, the 16th of December, the last wire of the year. Uh, for today's wire, we'll be doing best of the wire for Fridays um, for the whole of 2022. It's been an interesting year. Um, I'm your host, Joe, and I'm accompanied in the studio by my two producers, Daniel and David. How are we doing, fellas? Good. Yeah, kia Good. It's been um, a huge uh, year of news this year, and this week on the show, we have a quite a range of stories. Um, David will bring us City Councilling with Mike Lee. This week they discussed the Auckland Council's draft proposal for the 2023-2024 budget. Uh, Daniel looks at cuts in art funding, uh, but with a focus on the comedy and theatre community. Uh, I'll be recapping the year uh, with doc- my Dr Nick Rawlins interviews. Um, if you're familiar with all my work that I've done Throughout the year, on the uh, Monday Wire as well as the Thursday Wire, Dr. Nick Rawlins was a big part of um, a lot of fossil-related chats. Um, he is from the Paleogenetics Lab at the University of Otago, so we will, we will recap the best of those. Uh, David also spoke to Corin Seals from the University of Wellington about the Ukrainian language and culture seeing a renaissance in the face of the uh, Russian aggression. And our youngest reporter ever, Iris Butler interviews the Hamilton City Council about lime scooters in the Waikato River. We have a great show for you today, so keep it on the B for this hour. Here aha or fakaro, we'd love to hear your thoughts on any of these pieces. So tukipatui mai, you can text us in studio on 5395. Wai mai or give us a call in studio on 0930938793879. Also remember you can catch all these stories and more by podcast on the 95BFM website. Now, let's get into The Wire for Rāmere Friday. Sorry, best of The Wire. Now that's what I call a public mandate. The best of 95BFM's election coverage 2020. Now, tell me about your father. City Councilling on 95BFM, our weekly chat with the good people of Auckland Council. Yesterday, Auckland councillors discussed the Mayor's draft proposal for the annual 2023-2024 budget. While the proposal passed and was sent out to public consultation, it has proved controversial as it includes deep cuts to public services and selling Auckland Airport shares. Mayor Brown also caused controversy when he suggested Auckland Airport would be seeking capital investment before the airport announced it themselves. I spoke to Councillor Mike Lee about the topic. First question I have is, yesterday the Mayor was speculating that Auckland Airport was going to be doing a capital injection and then he said it was pretty obvious that it was going to happen and then the Regulatory Commission had to put a halt on the shares because Auckland Airport hadn't actually said anything and so then Auckland Airport came out and said it was going to be funded by debt and then the Mayor said, oh, we were just discussing. What on earth happened? The mayor and the council officers are determined to sell down the council's stake, significant stake in Auckland International Airport. That was handed down from regional leaders and government leaders, you know, a couple of generations back. 
and they will spend all that money for sure as they have spent other assets or the proceeds from other asset sales. So I, you know, coming back to the, the mayor's budget, we, you know, majority of councillors felt the mayor had the right, has the right to produce a budget, a proposal and put it before uh, the people of Auckland. So we respected that. I didn't in any way try to amend or formally amend or obstruct it. But like a lot of other councillors, I express major concerns and these concerns will have to be dealt with uh, in the months ahead before that budget can be signed off. And selling airport shares is one of those major concerns. And yeah, It was 20 to 1, I believe. And so what are some of the concerns that you hold? Well, the, f- the first concern is that the budget was really, uh, the, the financial inputs really were totally relied on from Auckland Council staff. The whole budget essentially relies on the system that got us into this into this problem to get us out of it. And I don't think that's particularly wise. In June, in the last budget of Mayor Goff, there was a $127 million deficit, which was passed over with the government grant relating to three waters. I won't go into that now, but that $127 million was was used to patch the hole in the budget. Around about election day, it was revealed that the projected deficit was $270 million, more than doubled. And then a few weeks later, it went to $295 million. So who knows what will happen next? But there is a systemic problem in Auckland Council. The council management are saying, oh, it's due to world inflation, it's due to increase interest rates. That's totally unconvincing, in my opinion. But the fundamental problems are not being addressed. So what's happening, a 7% rates increase, a increased borrowings of, of $75 million, major sell-down of, of income-earning assets, which I think is very, very short-sighted, decreases, cuts in services to communities, and increases in user charges. That sounds pretty much same old, same old to me, and I, I don't think it's the best way to get out of this problem. That's my my opinion. We'll see what the public feel about it. One of the issues that got brought up, which I feel like you are reasonably passionate about, is transport. And there's suggestion that they're going to raise, what, a 6.5% raise on public transport fees. They're going to cut $21 million out of the bus network budget. How do you feel about this? I think that's incredibly short-sighted. I I won't go into my discussions on the AT board, but if public transport patronage is approximately, or it's actually less, the last figures I have of what it was, 50% less of what it was in 2019 prior to COVID, the half-fare subsidy from the government will come off mid-next year. To then put bang on a 6.5% fare increase on top of that, and some of those fare increases will go up to 13-point-something percent, is the worst possible way of trying to encourage Aucklanders back onto public transport. If the whole strategy is to get people out of cars and onto public transport, that's not a very smart way to go. And I, I think it's not going to play well for anyone at all. And one more uh, 
complication, and I believe we discussed this at our last interview, is that Kiwi Rail and AT have agreed to shut down for two years, uh, rolling shutdowns for two years, large segments of the rail network and put on bus replacements. But we have a crisis with attracting bus drivers, and it's not just the pay and not just the conditions. It's also real concerns about safety that potential and existing bus drivers have. So we have a major problem and we're trying to address that problem in the same old, same old neoliberal formula. And I don't think it's going to work. We're already facing a bit of a problem with buses. And as you said, they're going to be shutting down the rail system and using replacement buses. Buses are already at a shortage at the moment, so they're cancelling one of the buses that was going to get was cancelled this morning. And they're going to cut $21 million from the bus network. And they're going to add on fare increase. This is just going to drive people back to cars. It's already doing that. Unfortunately, and I spent most of my time in, in regional government trying to build up pub, public transport, and we succeeded. For instance, rail patronage in the year 2000 was, I think, $2 million a year, and we got it up to over $21 million, and now it's about $10 million, and it's, it's less than it's less than $10 million, and it's less than what Wellington is currently carrying, which is a city significantly smaller in population than Auckland. So all the indicators are going backwards, and yet the powers of be are, are essentially applying Thatcherite measures, which will not work in my view. This is write-off strategy. If the strategy is to get people out of cars, lower carbon emissions, contribute to the global fight against climate change, which we hear about all the time, you know, council bureaucracy pumps this stuff all the time, but actually the words don't relate to the actions. There's a disjunct. It's not making strategic sense right now. What are your thoughts on selling the airport shares? I think those shares, okay, in 2019, the dividend received from the council was $59 million. That's equivalent to about a 3% rates increase. In other words, you take that $59 million away year on year, and all the council planning assumes continued growth in population. And so Auckland Airport will recover, is recovering from the global pandemic, and dividends will can be reasonably expected to return to what they were. So over the years, that's a steady source of income that cost the Auckland Council nothing was given to Auckland Council. And I have a moral issue about uh, selling publicly owned assets. I also have financial objections to selling income earning assets and then spending it and then there's nothing to replace it. It's Again, rather like the transport strategy, um, self-defeating in the long term. It may things may look good in the short term. However, it is not sustainable, and I don't believe it's justifiable. And I will, when it comes to unless there is a change, I, I, I will strongly oppose it. And I'm sure many other councillors and many other Aucklanders will. That's my personal feeling. I can't find the exact amount, but they are proposing cutting local board funding. What are your thoughts on that? The local boards are the interface with the local communities and a significant part of their role is supporting local groups, environmental work, cultural, artistic enterprises. So that's going to hurt. In my ward, there are three local boards in many ways quite different 
Waitematai Local Board and Auckland Central, Waiheke Island Local Board and the Aotea Great Barrier Local Board and the, the Island uh, Local Board because of their low population. But a significant territory, if there's across-the-board cuts, they're disproportionately affected. And as the Aotea Great Barrier Board chair, Izzy Fordham, points out, the level of cuts will mean the local board can't really do much except have meetings and its interface with the community will be stripped away because the level of cut will disproportionately affect that board and that community. So that's not good either. I spoke to Shane Henderson and he said the libraries are administered by the local boards and a lot of those libraries are real credits to their community. And if the local funding body is cut, is that going to affect local libraries? There will be some effect on libraries. Libraries are probably the best thing the... You know, I'm very critical of the Auckland Council, very critical of the Supercy, but library, the library system is probably one of the best things we do. Shane has spent many years on local boards, so he would have a better handle on the details of that, but I'm a regular library user myself, so it wouldn't surprise me, rather than touching the big contracts that they, they start running down library services, but that would be a terrible mistake. Again, it's over to the public to make their feelings felt about this and we've got some months now to analyse what is going on and I, I do hope that we get a strong pushback from the people of Auckland and I do hope that that strong pushback trumps an independent audit about what is going on inside the finances of the council and the CCOs. That was City Councillor Mike Lee talking about the reaction to Auckland Council's group's annual budget 2023-24. Have you tried mindfulness? Try mindfulness. City Councilling on 95BFM. Some current affairs age like fine wine. The best of the wire on 95BFM. I will now pass it over to Daniel. Mayor Brown's draft for the annual 2023-2024 budget includes drastic cuts for the arts. The plan is to stop regional grants for arts, events, community recreation and heritage. 8 million in total, and the removal of 20 million from community and social development programs, which include art events, education programs, and community programs. I spoke with Lauren Whitney, General Manager of New Zealand Comedy Trust that produces the New Zealand International Comedy Festival and supports the comedy industry. We spoke about the impact of these plans on the city of Auckland and the consequences these plans will have for individual and community well-being and mental health. What are your thoughts on the proposal of Wayne Brown? Uh, I'm furious, actually. I'm really angry. Um, just before Christmas, um, we're talking about taking $55.5 million out of arts, local events, key infrastructure, um, community events, local sporting events. Um, after three years of dealing with COVID, it feels like, the council is looking to, you know, grab the lowest hanging fruit and kick people who are already down. And I think it's really disgusting that just before Christmas, this has been just put in front of people like it's no big thing. And people are tired, they are scared, they are anxious. And all of these events and places um, that rely on this funding uh, are actually what people need the most. This city is crumbling. It's visually, visibly crumbling. And 
and we want to take the humanity out of it for $55 million? Really? It's so much money to, to, to the arts and local events and, you know, sporting events. Come on, free events, accessible events. And we want to take that money that's the lifeblood to these events and rip it out of a council budget, which is millions and millions of dollars. It's nothing in a big council budget, but it's everything to those events. Yeah, what will be the impact on the city of Auckland if that's going to be the case? So many people across the arts, community events and in local sporting events have been working so hard to make them more accessible, to make them more, you know, um, places where people can connect and enjoy themselves and see, see other people who are like them, share experiences. And we haven't been able to do that very well over the last three years. And the impact will be these events haven't been able to fund themselves because, you know, there's a reduction in, in being able to sell tickets. There's a cost of living crisis. All of these things mean that, you know, these events will, will disappear. And those that are able to stay by, will only be able to stay by increasing their ticket prices dramatically. Because, and, and so Aucklanders will continue to have to pay for it, but these things will only be accessible to the wealthy. And that's exactly what we've been trying not to have. So it's, it's really devastating, to be honest. Um, you know, I think that we, the, the, the other impact is we're not going to have the infrastructure to support large international concerts and things that we all love also because there'll be no crew to get them onto the stage. There'll be no people working in the venues. Some of the venues won't exist. And is that serious? You know, there's a, there's a line in the, in the staff feedback to the mayor, which is some community groups that are reliant on council grants might need to seek alternative funding. There isn't alternative funding. The only other funding they can get is getting those events are reliable on people having problem gambling habits to be able to get any money. And we're not talking huge money. No one's getting rich off these funds. You know, as a, as a major event like the Comedy Festival, you know, we bring 50,000, 60,000 people into the city every year. We have 2.5, in 2021, um, it was measured that the gross benefit of our event to Auckland was $2.5 million of what they could measure. That's only what they could measure. You know, this will have a huge economic impact. We support venues. We support local restaurants. We support public transport and parking. These events have an economic impact to the city. They benefit the city and not just ways around, around the economy, but mental health. You know, we've got a huge issue around anxiety and people feeling connected and people feeling isolated and and what we're wanting to do is pull the money out of those events that actually have a chance to bring people together it's crazy you know you only have to go to a show you know i've been sitting in comedy shows again in theaters and having this incredible moment where you see people laughing together you see a whole audience move forward as they're laughing the physical movement you know, they feel connected, they're buzzing. That's the bit you're going to lose. Kind of answered it maybe already, but mm. I was wondering, like, yeah, what, why should we value art? Why is art so important for society? Is that the well-being, the connection? Yeah, absolutely. And it's us telling our stories. It's us being proud of our culture. It's us finding connections with people who are different from us. 
you know, we've got a city that has a high rate of crime. It's feeling a little bit scary out there. And if we can't connect and have empathy for each other, how is that going to change? If we all sit in our houses being scared and terrified, it's only going to breed mistrust, isolation, anxiety. You know, it's you only have to go to a concert or a comedy show or any of those things. And, you know, play in a local sports tournament. And you come out and you feel good. You know, you feel like you've done something. You feel like you've connected. Um, I've got a quote here, actually. Um, Reese Matthewson, who was our, our youngest ever Billy T Award winner and, and also a Fred winner, said, comedy is quintessential to the New Zealand identity and the conversations that push our country forward. It allows us to cover tough topics with empathy and warmth, serve as a balm to the onslaught of terror and panic, and brings people together through laughter. The artists working within the New Zealand comedy scene are creating works that are vital, ecstatic, and filled with humanity. And for me, that really sums up what the impact of the arts is. You know, that's how we have these conversations, have these conversations through our artists. And, and, and it scares me that, they, that it's so easily disposable. That it's just a budget line that could just be white with no real discussion. You know, trains that are bringing people into an empty city. <laughs> That's what will exist. That was Lauren Whitney, General Manager of New Zealand Comedy Trust. I also spoke with Mark Harvey, who is part of Arts Makers Aotearoa, which was formed by a group of arts makers who are concerned about the lack of support for the arts in this country. And he is also part of the Creative Arts Industries faculty at the University of Auckland. Yeah, what are the challenges that the artistic community um, now experiences? Uh, the, the arts produced in 2019 $7 billion of our country's GDP and um, it's really under it's undervalued and, and so a lot of artists, most are undervalued, a lot of graduates go off and do great things from our universities etc and art schools and whatnot um, but it's very hard to sustain a living uh, a living sort of standard as an artist. Um, it's, you know, it's as it's sometimes worse than being on, on, on just the doll, some, often with the arts. And what will be the impact of Wayne Brown's plan for budget cuts on the arts for the artistic community in Auckland? So how will the proposed budget cuts make these challenges even bigger? Some of the proposals that are there are a $20 million um, cut to the arts in general, including, I understand, ATEED, which is, big, which is a massive council organisation um, that does a whole lot of events that we often take for granted, um, as though they're going to happen, um, plus $8 million on um, uh, all uh, arts, community, um, cultural, uh, and also with that environmental um, uh, grants that the council funds. And that, that includes lots and lots and lots of community groups um, and in the arts and, and in other areas um, on the ground who rely on the funding to do events. Um, uh, yeah, so you know, often those grants are only like three, four thousand dollars, not even that. Um, but it all mounts up. Um, additionally, on top of that, comes bigger grants uh, to, to bigger organisations like our theatres, the basement, some of our galleries, um, public festivals. Um, the list goes on, and, and 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 it's not just the arts as we know it. It's also what people might classify as culture, cultural events. You know that that involve the arts and other things like food and whatnot. Um, so it will impact uh, community kind of cohesion, uh, well-being on a mass scale, um, 
it'll prevent a lot of things going ahead. Um, it will impact on uh, on minorities, cultural minorities, etc. Um, majorly. Um, uh, so you know, a lot of groups around the around the city rely on this. So it will make it also a really boring place. <laughs> Simple as that. We'll have more car parks than we have art events. What do you think is the value of art? So why is it so important to have art in society? So what what do we lose? What does the city look like if we if it's get yeah. cut? Uh, yeah, now it's a really good question. Um, there's 3,000 researchers that um, show that the arts um, have a, a really, really positive um, impact on well-being and health uh, for, for people. And um, now without uh, the arts happening, you, you, you're, you're, you're um, causing a lot more need in relation to uh, uh, mental health services um, in particular. For instance, so so it serves a really big role there. Um, identity, majorly culturally. I mean, uh, if from my own cultural perspectives, um, my own, you know, Maori background, Maori Pakeha background, um, the arts are fundamental. They're in, they're integrated into everything in, in our daily lives. Um, uh, yeah. So so without the arts, it, it, we aren't who we are. Um, for a lot of us, and, and a lot of us actually rely on it all the time without realising. Even on Netflix, you know, we've got the arts there. Um, even spin-off kind of uh, uh, industries and whatnot, like advertising, they rely on the arts in order to get to where they're going. Um, so it's really fundamental in lots and lots of ways. It's also educational, um, like very significantly. Um, uh, the contemporary arts uh, play a, 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 a huge role. And, and can play a, an even larger role in helping us to come to terms with the world and you know, educating ourselves around things. Um, I work with a lot of uh, projects that um, are commissioning Māori artists in relation to ecological issues, and they are helping, their projects are helping their communities, the iwi happen and the public, come to terms with perspectives through uh, what it means to... Uh, see things through the te ao Māori, you know, the Māori world um, perspectives and also educating us around these um, ecological issues. Yeah, so it, it, it's really, really widespread in terms of what the arts does um, for us um, and it's really underrated and often ignored and not realised. And it's only once we lose those things that often we notice. You can tell a lot about a country and particularly a city um, by how the arts are treated and how they're valued. You know, look at the uh, sculptures that you see around. What are you seeing? That also reveals a huge amount about the politics and, and um, everything within that place. So all of that is at risk at the moment in our city with the men's um, funding uh, proposals. An argument that some people would give is maybe um, could artists not create their own economic situation where they earn money with their arts without funding? What would be your reaction on that? Um, some artists can, say, operate within commercial frameworks. You know, I have no problem with that. Um, and some, you know, for instance, have dealers, but not everyone does. So um, these, these areas of funding, uh, government funding and council funding, um, help to support artists who don't have those forms of um, economic privilege. Um, so, yeah, the market only looks after the market. It doesn't look after our well-being necessarily. But if we want to preserve um, the fabric of our, of our local cultures 
um, the way they are in the arts, it helped to help them to thrive. Um, we need to keep that investment up. In fact, there's not enough investment in the arts locally, um, and, and the market is just not going to fix those shortfalls. That was Mark Harvey, part of Artmakers Aotearoa and the Creative Arts Industries Faculty of the University of Auckland. Lastly, I also spoke with Kat Rucka, the executive director of Basement Theatre, a little theatre on the back of Queen Street. We spoke about the impact the budget plans will have on Auckland as a city and on the Basement Theatre. We also spoke about the intrinsic value that art has in society. What are your thoughts on the annual budget plan and the proposed budget cuts? I think the, the proposed budget cuts that have been put forward will significantly destabilise the art sector. You know, what we know is that when we're in times of economic crunch, like the time that we're in now, um, the arts are always the first to go because that sort of the deep value of arts and culture is not necessarily understood by the public and by people in positions of power. Um, but what we know from the inside is deeply the value of the arts to society. What is exactly that role that art plays in society? I see the arts as being the thread that weaves all the parts of society together. Um, and I think particularly in the rebuilding of our city after COVID, it has a really, really vital role to play. So the arts, um, you know, are a major contributor to the economic well-being of our city. Um, the arts contribute to individual and community well-being. Um, the arts and, arts and culture are also, you know, it is what makes our identity of our city and... Um, you know, the vibrancy and the attraction of our city. Um, and also just in thinking about the rebuilding of the city after COVID, um, the arts has played a major role in that kind of aspect of social cohesion. So bringing people back into the city um, and connecting with each other. So there are many, um, there are many areas of um, benefit to society that the, that arts play, and we just have to get really good at sort of understanding those and communi communicating those to uh, the public and to people in positions of power. How can art connect people? You know, if we look at Basement Theatre, for example, so at the moment we're staging our annual Christmas show, and this is a huge event um, that attracts many different kinds of people from many different walks of life, um, and we have seen, you know, this show alone... Uh, connect people who wouldn't normally um, you wouldn't normally see in the same space together, um, and so I think particularly theatre, which is my perspective, you know, it's it is a way of of bringing people back into the city and sort of re-entering into these social contexts. What will be the impact of those plans for the art community in Auckland? So basically, what's happening is the the mayor has proposed um, to reduce the um, operational expenditure across a number of different areas. And the arts funding, so the contestable grants, is one part of of what they call is a mitigation lever. They're going to, you know, cut, cut uh, expenditure in that area. And those grants support a number of arts organisations across the city. Um, they, they also support a number of artists. So, for example, at Basement, uh, Auckland Council is one of our core funders. 
um, and the grant that we receive from them makes up about 10% of our overall grant revenue each year. So that's the equivalent of one whole staff member, for example, that um, paying them for a whole year for their salary for the whole year. Or it's also the equivalent of about 10, supporting 10 artists a year through our development programs. So that's quite a significant impact on our organisation alone. And then there's many other organisations that will be experiencing the same sort of impact if those grants are taken away. Um, the annual budgets of 2023-2024 will be operational from the 1st of July. 2023. In January, there is a democratic moment where people can give their feedback on it. But what can we do against this draft right now? What we can do today is to continue to put pressure on our councillors to stand up for for the arts within that council context. Um, and what we need to get really good at, like I said before, is being able to communicate that intrinsic deep value um, that the arts plays within society across a number of different areas, including our economy, including the identity and vibrancy of our city, including our individual and community well-being. How can art influence the community well-being? So the arts play a huge role in well-being, both for the person creating it and for the person receiving it. So if I go back to theatre again, our practitioners are those people who are telling our stories back to our people. And in that exchange, there is a, a strengthening and a building of, of who we are and an affirmation of who we are as Aucklanders uh, and as New Zealanders, people living in Aotearoa. So um, it's that kind of that... that identity and community affirmation that contributes to our well-being that happens in the exchange of a story being told. That was Kat Ruka, Executive Director of Basement Theatre. The government has indicated a progressive... A, 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 oh, wow. The Wire. You're in The Wire for Ramadi Friday. Best of The Wire for Ramadi Friday. Also, the last Wire of the year. Uh, you can text us in 5395 or give us a call on 0930938879. Let us know what you think of all the pieces you've heard so far. We'll be right back after this short break. Happy Christmas! Give the gift of cannabis this Christmas. Get a tinny two Tiger Drops Holy CBG Hemp Oils for the price of one. Holy CBG Hemp Oil is suitable for the whole family to use. And now, just in time for Christmas, you can get two for one. Two. For one, Tiger Drops is a prohibited food. Use it religiously. Go to tigerdrops.com, select two bottles and enter code CBG. It's posted ASAP by Overnight Courier. Happy Christmas! What's a seven-letter word for Street Fighter? No idea. I know that tonight at Ponsonby Social Club there's... Frank Talbot Organ Live, followed by Bobby Brazooka and Soul Tree. And tomorrow... Michael Martinuk Live, followed by Max Tamahori and Jerem Hall. Same old Ponsonby Social Club, 152 Ponsonby Road. Fearsome Engine, the debut album from Rip Ship, is out now. Produced by Soulfates, Peter Ruddle and pressed to Baby Pink, vinyl by 1 to 12 Records, Fearsome Engine is an intergalactic odyssey spanning the psychedelic infinities of space and mind. There's more information. Fearsome Engine, the debut album from Ripship, streaming now on all 
platforms. Pre-order your vinyl today from Flying Out or go to ripship.bandcamp.com. Did you know that almost 50% of gamers are women? Uh-huh. But women make up less than 10% of the industry? MOTAT is celebrating New Zealand and Australian women in games with their new exhibition, Code Breakers. Crush bullies in Ninja Pizza Girl, run with animals in Armello, and get to the heart of what a more inclusive games industry could look like. Discover the human stories behind great games at Code Breakers. On now at MOTAT, 10am to 4pm. Find out more at motat.nz. Has this ever happened to you? All right, Brent, I've warned you before about that tie. You're sacked. And don't go screaming to HR either, because they're sacked too. I would have sacked you months ago, Brent, but your landlord's a friend of mine, and I'd hate to see him out of pocket. Now get out. Get to know your rights on Red Dead Redemption with Auckland Union representative Justine Sachs. Mondays at 9.30 in a fortnightly rotation with a room of one's own. Only on 95 BFM Breakfast. This is a sad, sad day. Um, BFM, the font of liberalism and tolerance at the <laughs> centre of the University of Auckland. The Wire. Welcome back to The Wire for it. I'm Friday. Also, the best of The Wire for 2022. I will pass it over to David next for a piece he had earlier this year. The best of The Wire on 95 BFM. Vladimir Putin claims Russia and Ukraine are one people, denying the country its own history and culture. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian language and culture is seeing a renaissance in the face of Russian aggression. Earlier this year, I spoke to Victoria University of Wellington applied linguistics professor Corinne Seals about how Ukrainians are embracing their own identity. Ukrainian language and culture is seeing a renaissance in the face of Russian aggression. I spoke to Victoria University of Wellington applied linguistics professor Corinne Seals about the steps Ukrainians are taking to embrace their own national identity. What are some of the main differences between Ukrainian and Russian? There's a shared history, but also a difference in history linguistically between the Ukrainian and Russian languages. And you get actually more similarities between them if you're in eastern Ukraine. They're actually quite different if you're in western Ukraine. And that's the same like any dialect in any country, you know, that there's changes depending on where you are. When we talk about differences between them, there are vocabulary differences, there are pronunciation differences, there are sentence structure differences. For example, if we look at kind of on a continuum, say, you know, Russia, Ukraine, Poland, if we look at that and how people say thank you, then in Russia, it's spasibo. In Ukraine, it's dziakuyu. And in Poland, it's Dziękuję. So you can see Dziękuję is a lot closer to Dziękuję than it is to Spasiba. So there's a lot of influence from Polish in Ukrainian and still its own marked individual language and has been its own individual language and noted as such by linguists dating back to approximately the 10th century and modern Ukraine dating back being its own language to approximately the 17th century, which is the same time period that we can date back modern French to. A lot of people speak Ukrainian and Russian in the country. Mm -hmm. Um, How other languages traditionally spread out across the country? You get a lot of people currently who who speak Russian in eastern Ukraine. You get a lot of 
people who speak both in the center, and this is on a normal, everyday basis. And you get a lot of people who speak more Ukrainian in the West. And a lot of that has to do with the history of Russification that was part of the Soviet empire. The Soviet Union, when it took on a lot of what is now modern Ukraine, when it took that, they enforced Russification policies and Ukrainian language was not allowed to be spoken, and a lot of Ukrainian language speakers spoke it at home, underground sort of thing. So because of that, the areas that were closer to Russia geographically got hit harder by Russification, and there was a replacement of languages for families and individuals where Ukrainian was replaced with Russian. Since 1991, in Ukrainian independence, there's been a big effort and movement to revitalize the Ukrainian language across the country. And what that's mean in reality is that you now have a whole lot of people who speak both languages in the country. And that's a, a reflection of history as well as current identity and language practices. How much has the war in Ukraine contributed to the growth or spike almost of the Ukrainian language in the Ukrainian culture? So it's the current war in Ukraine from Russia is it's had a major contributing factor on the number of people who have done what is called changing their mother tongue. So this is the way that Ukrainians describe it. Ukrainians, which I'll, sometimes I'll say we because that's my family as well, we have been part of this movement of change your mother tongue and that's how it's described. And it is an alignment with a Ukrainian national identity. And um, there are a couple of parts to this. One part is that because of the ongoing war, and keep in mind that the mass infiltration of Russian troops into Ukraine, it happened, the huge amount of it happened recently, but Russia has occupied Ukraine territory illegally since 2014, end of 2013, beginning of 2014. And there's been nonstop fighting since then. So the this change your mother tongue movement really happened at that time initially and then now it's come back with even stronger force as a result of this heavy artillery invasion across the country what has happened is ukrainians have been asked to think again about what does it mean to be ukrainian especially since the russian government and putin like to say there's no such thing as ukrainians so you imagine if you're told there's no such thing as you <laughs> you you sit for a minute and go, okay, what does it mean to be me then? And so there's been this revisiting of what does it mean to be Ukrainian. There's been this uptake of more of a national identity. So Ukrainians before 2013-2014, before Euromaidan, they used to identify about half regionally as being the primary most important identity and half nationally. After Maidan, it became 75% of people identified nationally as being the most important. And part of that national identification has been connected with Ukrainian as the national language. So there's been this big movement where people are doing what they describe as um, shifting their consciousness to be more of a national consciousness. So I've had a lot of people I've worked with who say they're switching. They want to change the language that they that they think in, that they dream in, to be Ukrainian, to align more with what it means for them to be Ukrainian. Is there an opposite movement to kind of shred their Russian influence? A way that helps me think of this is in my field, we talk about it as positive identity practices when you're aligning with something and negative identity practices when you're trying to push away from something. 
And so what I talked about before was positive. But yes, there are also negative ones. That also is a bit tricky for people, though, because when you've got people who have family, you know, parents, grandparents who are still living in eastern Ukraine, who still speak Russian as a primary language, then there's still that some association with Russian language that people cannot shed completely because of wanting to maintain contact. But it has become something where a lot of Ukrainians have looked at, okay, so if we are individually or a collective also making a conscious effort linguistically to change to Ukrainian, but we cannot entirely shed the Russian language because we alienate too many people we don't want to alienate, then um, what else can we do? So there's been a big movement to push away from Russian literature, any Russian art, like the, the Moscow Ballet, the Bolshoi Ballet, and to push away from a lot of this idea, great Russian art and great Russian literature. And so Ukrainians have really been working on pushing that away because of not wanting people to to join together the ideas of this artistic greatness with Russia, with the current government, right? So it's this idea of um, let's try to separate them. So you can talk about like individual authors, but don't equate them to anything of Russian greatness. So let's push away from that instead and push away from those ideas. So there's a lot of distancing from that. And a lot of uh, Ukrainians have like stopped reading Russian literature, have stopped listening to Russian music, all in favor of uh, Ukrainians instead, which is equally as good. Putin and the Russian media have seen some very bold statements saying that Ukraine isn't a real country and the Ukrainians aren't real and that it was created out of the USSR. How valid is this claim? Oh, it's so not valid. That's one of the first things you need to successfully establish a genocide is to deny the existence of a people. And so it's very, um, that's crucial for Putin's mission than in what he's doing and what the Russian uh, military are doing going against and essentially leading this genocide against against Ukrainian people. And so that whole discourse over it's not a real country and all that, it's more that it feeds into their their goals currently. Though I do believe he believes that somewhat. I mean, he does believe that it's true, that Ukraine's not a real country, which is fascinating in a very twisted way because it when you've got an entire nation of people who identify with their country that has been internationally recognized as a country and has a long-standing history going back to the 10th century <laughs> you know that's that's quite an interesting um way to fool yourself with rewriting history that was Victoria University of Wellington's Applied Linguistics professor Corinne Seals talking about the renaissance of the Ukrainian language. Ah! The Wire. Next up, we have 95 BFM's youngest reporter, Iris Butler, speaking to the Hamilton City Council about lime scooters in the Waikato River. Here she is now. Earlier this year, commercial diver Tua Corellis found five lime scooters in a section of the Waikato River. Corellis also found 18 cars in the river over two months. The battery acid found in both cars and electric scooters is hazardous for marine life. 
An employee at Lyme said that the company is working to stop this vandalism and that Lyme's could not operate in areas near the river. I spoke to unit manager at Hamilton City Council, Calvin Powell, about the problems of scooters ending up in the Waikato River. Is it a common occurrence that you get calls or reports about Lyme scooters being found in the Waikato River? Uh, not very often. We, what we get is we get notification that scooters that were last seen near the river have gone have gone missing. Now we've had divers in the river and they have found about thirty over the two and a half years that um, they've been operating here. But there are still seven scooters that are outstanding that we that that Lyme can't find. They may be in the river, or they may have just been dropped somewhere else. And whose responsibility do you think it should be to take out the scooters from the river? Ah, oh, look, it is absolutely the responsibility of the company that owns the scooters. They hire them out, and they have to be responsible. Now, I can say that they do have. A contract with a dive company who will dive into the river and recover them if we know where they are in the river. What do you think the reason for people dumping scooters in the river may be? I honestly don't know, Iris. I think sometimes people may have perhaps been drinking a bit much. I think sometimes people think it's funny to do it or they want to get attention I really don't know what the full reason is it's just really bad behavior for 95 BFM news this is Iris Butler that was Iris Butler 95 BFM's youngest reporter by the way speaking to the Hamilton City Council about Lime scooters in the Waikato River old news the best of the wire on 95 BFM you're on 95BFM. This is the best of the wire for Ramene Friday. We'll be right back after this short break. iLab is hosting a massive clearance sale on right now at Flying Fish Studios. Up to 70% off samples, limited release items, and gems from the archive. That's 70% off! iLab's high performance rides, athletic, outerwear, and lifestyle clothing. Designed and tested in New Zealand. iLab clearance sale on now in Sunday 4 pm at Flying Fish Studios, 230 Ponsby Road. Do not miss out. It's a Christmas miracle. The Pat Menzies Christmas Chaos Sale is on now. The original stockists of your favourite shoe brands. Pat Menzies has been keeping you in stylish kicks since the 70s. Now they're offering 20 to 30% off selected styles from Doc Martens, Vans, Converse, New Balance and more. Don't miss 20 to 30% off at Pat Menzies Christmas Sale. On right now till the 28th. Canterbury Arcade, Queen Street. Hawaiian Airlines, flying you to beautiful Hawaii and on to 15 US cities three times per week. Fares to Honolulu start from just $619 one way. Go to hawaiianairlines.co.nz. Oh, you're listening to my boy. Well, he's my boy, so... Oh, yeah, the collective my. You mean our? That's the one, our boy. Okay, but I disagree because he's actually mine, so... 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 So, 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 our 
your boy Marlon Williams is playing live at the Civic. We're giving away tickets all this week on 95BFM Drive. So just suss your B-card and stay tuned all this week for your chance to win. 95BFM presents Marlon Williams at the Civic, January 19th and 20th. Get your tickets now from Ticketmaster. Some current affairs age like fine wine. The Best of the Wire on 95BFM. Welcome back to The Best of the Wire for 95BFM. Uh, our last piece for today, uh, over the duration of this year, I've had uh, the honour of being able to speak to Dr. Nick Rawlins from the Paleogenetics Lab at the University of Otago. We've had many a chats about fossils, dinosaurs, and Aotearoa's genetic whakapapa. Um, it's all been very, very insightful, and a uh, big shout out to Dr. Nick Rawlins for those chats over the last year. It's been great. Um, but yeah, next up is one of my favorites. It's about extinct marine reptiles. Here that is now. I have a really cool story for us today. Um, we'll be talking about our dinosaurs again. Dinos- if you remember, like uh, I think it was a few weeks ago, where we did the same like similar story, talking about uh, old species here in New Zealand. And yeah, I had an opportunity to speak to, uh, to Nick Rawlins from the Paleogenetics Lab at the University of Otago. Um, yeah, guess what we were talking about today, Trishel? Um, a little bit of Jurassic World and how it is very, very scientifically inaccurate. Uh, close, close. Uh, we are talking about um, New Zealand's extinct reptiles. Um, now, I'm a big fan of sea monsters. I think they're sick. Um, <laughs> should probably get into the story. Uh, yeah, uh, look, I'll let uh, Nick explain to you guys uh, what we were talking about. No, we, we do. So the, the three main groups of marine... Um, reptiles that we've uh, we've got in um, the fossil record is we've got the um, basically the plesiosaur group that's um, got your plesiosaurs which you can think of as your uh, long necked uh, marine reptiles and your elasmosaurs which are the ones with the really really long uh, neck. We don't tend to have um, any pliosaurs which are the short necked um, ones like the the famous um, Chronosaurus um, in Australia. But we've also got uh, Mosasaurs, which um, are the really big, uh, scary ones. And then we've got um, Ixesaurs as well, which are commonly known as um, the the fish lizards. They superficially look uh, something like a dolphin. To my understanding, uh, Auckland Museum had an exhibit with these um, reptiles on display? Yeah, they did. And I, I think it was the same one that was down here at Otago uh, Museum that I took my kids to, and they um, they uh, absolutely loved it. But, yeah, interestingly enough, these, uh, they're just, they're so fascinating. I think particularly because they, uh, they sort of capture that whole uh, sea monster um, sort of uh, crowd as well, like like you said, um, especially with the Mosasaurus, um, which is you know it was featured in Jurassic Park and such. Mm. Um, yeah, so tell me a bit about all of them, and yeah, what we know so far. Yeah, so um, New Zealand, like New Zealand's dinosaur records, quite fragmentary, and most of it's known uh, from areas like Port Waikato or um, up the back of Hawke's Bay, the, the famous um, site that Joan and Pont uh, Whiffen found New Zealand's first dinosaurs, or there's some dinosaurs out on the Chatham Islands. We've got a really good um, marine reptile um, fossil record with um, sites up the back of Hawke's Bay again, 
um, around Lake Waikara Moana, um, inland from Hawke's Bay, and also the Waipara um, River Gorge in um, North Canterbury. And so the the interesting, um, all the other sites probably suggest uh, is um, Shag Point, where we've got Kaifekia, um, colloquially known as um, Shagosaurus down here, which is that, that big plesiosaur that's on uh, display in Otago um, Museum. And so for the likes of um, Mosasaur, there are several species that uh, were in New Zealand, and Mosasaurs are really interesting because they only arose about uh, 30 million years before um, the extinction of the dinosaurs and um, the plesiosaurs. They like just appeared like almost like a blip in the fossil record. And there's one theory that the rise of mosasaurs actually led to the extinction of um, the ichthyosaurs. Um, there's another theory is that um, volatility in the um, environment uh, and climate led to the extinction um, of the ichthyosaurs. Now, New Zealand's ichthyosaur record is um, quite a bit fragmentary. There's been some finds that are still undergoing investigation um, found up the Clarence River near Kaikoura. Um, and there's some really famous finds uh, from Mount Potts uh, in Canterbury in the 1800s that um, supposedly had some of the biggest vertebrae um, ever found, um, uh, similar in size to like the giant um, Shonosaurus and Shasosaurus, around 21 metres long. But all of those bones were put on a ship and sent to America, and the ship went down. And... Um, no one's ever been able to verify um, those those giant uh, finds. Now, with the the, the plesiosaurs and the elasmosaurs, we've got skull material, some of the exquisite skulls, um, uh, like sitting at um, GNS and uh, Te Papa. And there's there's been a bit of research done on um, uh, this group in New Zealand, but also work that uh, my wife did as part of her uh, honours work looking at um, neck function in um, the, this group and it looks like they all swam with their heads down but also they had limited movement in their neck um, so you're not going to get like the classic uh, neck shapes like people associate with the Loch Ness Monster and um, elasmosaurs and plesiosaurs. That was Dr Nick Rawlins from the Paleogenetics Lab at the University of Otago speaking about extinct marine reptiles. I'm Paddy Garren. This is the f***ing news on The Wire. That was The Wire. Ko ere te hōtaka katoa mō tēnei wiki e te mihi ki a koutou katoa e kōrero mou ki o And that is a wrap on the Friday Wire best of the wire and wire for the year thanks to everyone who spoke with us today uh city counseling with mike lee obviously um lauren whitey general manager of new zealand comedy trust mark harvey who is part of arts maker aotearoa kat Ruka, who the executive director of the basement theater dr nick rawlins from the paleogenetics lab at the university of otago corin seals a linguistics professor from the victoria university of wellington as well as our youngest ever reporter here at 95 bfm iris butler who spoke with the hamilton city council uh and thanks to you fellas my producers daniel and david great show and yeah great time on the friday way with you guys thank sure. you thank you for thank having you. me
Neira hoki te mihi kia koutou e whakaronga. Ana, thanks for tuning in. Biri kihi kiri himiti uh, to the BFM listeners and namihi o te tauhou. Happy New Year from all of us here at the 95 BFM News Team. Stay safe and make sure you guys have a good holiday. We will see you next year. You are listening to 95 BFM. I will now leave you with the one to two, the land of the good growth. Matewa. That was a 95 BFM podcast. Support 95 BFM with a B card. Go to 95bfm.com/sign up.